the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen in as you sit at home, walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. We have a very special episode for you today. We have yet another episode hosted by Chris Tilling. He's on a roll. He's interviewing Seth Herringer, and I know you'll love this episode. Chris said it was one of the best conversations he's had. Uh, Thanks to all of you who have been giving us iTunes ratings. It really impacts our ability to reach new audiences. So as annoying as it might be, could I ask that you uh, give us your honest assessment on iTunes if you haven't done so already or on whatever platform you you get this podcast. That that really helps us. And as a side note, the reviews are really encouraging too. Um, I can only see a few of them because um, I'm based here in the UK and they only let you see certain UK-based reviews. ratings so uh but i've occasionally when i'm back in the states seen the u.s ones as well and um i know others have given us ratings in the places they're located so we are always blown away by how kind and thoughtful you all are toward us so thanks for that and also i've decided to give our onscript listeners a rating so you ready for this here we go i'm giving you a 10 out of five stars Now, you thought that wasn't possible, right? Uh, But it is because I just did it. And here's what I wrote in my review. Okay, here we go. Onscript listeners bring theological and biblical fire. Indeed, literal, biblical, and theological fire. To theologically parched highways and byways worldwide. Sorry about the mixed metaphor there, by by the way. Just a side note, like bringing fire to parched highways is, you know, but whatever. I'm grateful for each one of you. That includes our listener in the Ukraine, our three listeners in Bahrain, and our two listeners in Panama. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are theologically in touch, but set an example for the biblically vapid through your ever-expanding library, your increasingly obscure vocabulary, and your nearly incessant scholarly passion. And behold... That's the, that's the uh, Hine Hebrew particle for you biblical Hebrew scholars out there. And behold, we'll keep providing quality podcasting even until the end of the age. So there you go. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Okay, so this is Chris Tilling with OnScript uh, interviewing Dr. Seth Herringer. Um, he is Assistant Professor of Theology and Scripture at Takawa Falls College. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, great job. Fantastic. He also serves as an adjunct faculty member at both Fuller Theological Seminary and Azusa Pacific University. He has written articles that have appeared in the Scottish Journal of Theology and the Journal of Theological Interpretation, in addition to chapters in Ears That Hear, Explorations in Theological Interpretation of the Bible, and Teaching the Bible in the Liberal Arts Classroom, Volume 2. He is married to Laura, an internal medicine doctor, and together they have five children aged six and under, which is impressive. When he is not (laughs) trying to corral his children, he enjoys 
baking sourdough bread, fishing and reading or watching science fiction and fantasy. Today, we're discussing his new book, Uniting History and Theology, a theological critique of the historical method, published in 2018 by Fortress Academic. And this book clarified many questions for me and uniquely sharpened the issues at hand. And important issues they are. How should history be understood? How might faith relate to history and the work of historians? How are events of the past to be related to our historical reconstructions? And what might Jesus have to do with any of this? The divide between biblical studies and systematic theology, hence the curriculum of most theology degrees, is often premised on certain answers to these questions. Herringer aims for the heart of these complex questions, the historical critical method, and he begins the task of articulating how Christian theology might respond and create its own historical method. Um, so, Seth, welcome to OnScript. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to be here today. Well, I thought I'd f- begin by asking you a little bit about your background. What got you interested in this subject? Yeah, um, in this subject in particular, um, I it actually happened in my master's program. Um, I took a class with Kevin Rowe, um, the New Testament scholar yep, at Duke. And uh, on New Testament theology, and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> um, I was a master student, and it was mostly PhD students in that class. Um, and I asked uh, Kevin whether you know he would allow me to take it with him, and he graciously agreed and said, "As long as you're willing to work, I'm happy to have you." And so it was a it was a very unique opportunity. It was like a seminar type. You know, it wasn't a big classroom, but seminar maybe. Um, with uh, you know, maybe seven of the people who actually most people in there have gone on to get PhDs and do great work. I mean, you know, some some upcoming scholars. So it was sort of a unique, really fun place to be. And um, Kevin had us read, um, you know, as part of a New Testament theology class, he had us sort of dive deeply into this question of history and theology. And we read this uh, Trelch right on the historical and dogmatic method. And I remember we all. I remember sitting, it's, just, it's a very clear moment in my mind. You know, we all come to class that morning and it's a seminar. And he basically says like, so, um, you know, how do we how do we solve the problem with historical and dogmatic method, right? Are we all just doing dogmatics and not history? Or, um, you know, what can we do now? Or is Charles right that, you know, analogy and things and we, there can be no resurrection anymore. And everyone sat around that room and I remember looking around at, you know, around eight really of the smartest people I knew, right? You know, um, and it was just silence. And it was the first time that there had been silence in that classroom, um, you know, for the whole year. And, you know, Kevin led us through a discussion there. But I remember us, me leaving that room feeling unsatisfied and being like, here's a, here's a real question that no one in that room had a good answer to. Um, and Kevin tried to help us, and I'm not saying he didn't have a you know a good answer, but it was the first time I think sort of in my career I didn't have any idea what to do with this problem, and that created a deep desire in me to study it more and work from it, and um, that is sort of the beginnings of my reflection on the relation of history and theology. Brilliant. I suppose that really gets to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? Because you've you've articulated so well there just how important this issue is. Um, this isn't, um, you know, the, how might we understand the aorist in, in Amos 2 verse 3. This is really actually getting to the heart of something that's immensely important in contemporary discourse. Um, so perhaps, I mean, you've already hinted at this, but um, 
who have been your your main theological inspirations in your journey? Yeah, um, I mean that's a hard question to answer exactly. I mean when it comes to questions on history, um, you know Joel Green was my PhD mentor, and so he's influenced me a lot. Uh, Murray Ray was also highly influential to me. He's became a good friend as I worked through these questions. I actually went to study with him for two weeks in New Zealand. Um, he hosted me very graciously, and he you know influenced me a lot as I started to think, who are the people that are um, you know faithful Christians doing work on the historical method? And uh, part of the reason I went to study with Joel is because I knew he was doing work on this, and um, he could sort of guide me in the right directions. And so those two are sort of the you know modern people. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, now he's not doing sort of the work on the historical method, but he's doing work on theological interpretation of scripture, which those other two are also. Um, but from more of the theological side. And he's been influential sort of more in my um, just larger understandings of hermeneutics, thinking, thought, how to be a thoughtful Christian that cares about the church, um, that cares deeply about, you know, being ironic in in conversation with with all sorts of people, um, being to read deeply and think um, aesthetically and and literately. and so those are sort of my three. I'm just going to, st- I mean, if we want to go farther back in time, I, we can talk about, but those are sort of my three, um, you know, sort of contemporary theologians that I have, um, you know, interacted interacted deeply with. Yeah, I'm sure they'd all be pleased to hear that as well. So why don't we dive right in into your first chapter? Um, you claim that contemporary biblical studies has misappropriated German historicism. Um, maybe you could explain what German historicism is, how that factors into all of this, and how we've misunderstood it. Yeah, I mean, so German historicism is a, like every term, right, historical, every every uh, academic term is somewhat contested, exactly what it means. But you can just sort of think of it as, uh, I mean, I think a way that I can think of it is, um, you know, a series of thinkers out of Germany that are really trying to reflect on, you know, what do we mean when we think of history? And what they sort of end up deciding is uh, history and historical method are is this idea of um, you have to judge every historical moment based on its own terms, right? That there and that and that ends up being a progression through history. And so that and, and, and there's a sort of an upward progression into history, right? Almost. Um, Almost like Hegelian in some sense, right? German historicism has roots in Hegelianism and also connections with Hegelianism. And so it's a group of, um, yeah, German thinkers who are trying to think deeply, how do we do history? And in general, the conclusion is you have to judge every historical moment based on its own terms. And you can't have some sort of universalizing understanding of history that you impose back onto history um, and, and make, you know, and make sort of moral and judgments back on that. But then there's also, as I said, that sort of underlying idealism which is um, they also think that that it's not just naturalism, but it's also there are, you know, they call they call it all sorts of different things, but like the idea with a capital I or God or something like that, that is guiding, moving history through time. Um, And there's a big idea, but then there's also little ideas with also with capital I's, something like the nation state, which I think can be problematic when you think of Germany. Um, and so that there is, I mean, in general, that's German historicism. The way I think that German historicism, and this is probably the more interesting part, that's just sort of an academic aside. The more interesting part is how German historicism has been taken up and used in biblical studies and theology. And that's where my criticism comes in, in that if you read people 
theologians, biblical studies, who are tr- biblical scholars who are trying to do reflection on what history is, a very common practice would be um, to go back and point to these German historicists and say, listen, this is where the beginning of the historical method is arising, right? They're starting to take into account the Enlightenment thinking with, of, you know, science is starting to trump tradition, um, where all traditions are falling, and and that is now sort of morphing into history, or that's, that is becoming, um, those ideas are now being taken up by historians, and this is sort of what you have, right? The Enlightenment applied to history. Um, and that's what biblical scholars think historicism is, and I'm problematizing that by saying, if you actually read these guys like Von Ranke and Trelch, who are some of the most cited scholars, they are not naturalists, right? Um, in the way that scholars portray, portray them to be. They're idealists, which then I think gives room for Christians to go back and explore like, okay, they're not naturalists. What is actually going on back there? Yeah, and that was a real surprise for me, to be honest with you. I, I was only familiar with secondary literature on German historicism. I hadn't read Ranke or Trolsch at all. In um, and to to find out actually that there's an underlying idealism uh, guiding their own um, uh, principles was was um, deeply enlightening. Um, so maybe you could say, if in the world of contemporary biblical scholarship, um, in how it has appropriated German historicism, and you you often speak of the the Rankian historical theory um, throughout the book. What is Rankian historical method? What does it look like? Right. So I just want to, one caveat there, which I actually have in a footnote, um, is that when I say Rankian, I mean what what Ranke has become. Do you know what I mean? So I don't actually mean that this reflects his own position. It means that this is what um, some of, well, let me say half of his ideas, right? I think that modern biblical scholarship has taken up half of von Ranke. And so they... Ronkian historiography to me is sort of just half of him. So I just want to put that out there, right? I, I'm not trying to say that that is what von Ranke means. That is what he has been morphed into as sort of a, um, yeah. Um, and by that, I mean um, this idea that historians, right, um, you go to the archives. And that actually is part of what von Ranke was about, right? Well, job of historian is you go to the archives, you sit down, you find something brand new that has never been done before, right? Um, so, you know, find some archive, and then um, you write that up according to scientific principles, public principles, principles that everybody can agree upon, and then um, according to some sort of like laws that fit within the scientific method. Um, you can trace there. There is a common and strong thread running from von Ranke all the way up to the modern time, where that is the goal. It's like you are a detective. Right? This is often an analogy that you will see lots of biblical scholars use. You are a detective, a neutral detective, an unbiased detective, where you go and you look at you know, the, the archives, you look at the historical artifacts um, with unbiased eyes, and you try to, um, and this is a key component, right? You try to minimize yourself as much as you can. Um, you, know, um, you get rid of yourself so that the, the history the events themselves can sort of shine through in a true unbiased manner. And that is all being done under a set of principles that usually are something closely related to the scientific method. I'm being a little bit vague. I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that, but in general, I think that's fair to say that's correct, but a little bit general is that something like the scientific method being applied to history. Yeah. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Now, I thought it would be a good idea quickly to turn to the second chapter, which was an awful lot of fun to read. You um, you take on quite a few big names, Kehler, Pannenberg, uh, Tom Wright, um, but before you get into all of that, you begin by describe, describing Hans Frey's typology or categories. Um, can you explain the distinctions that Frey presses and why they are useful? Yeah, I think, uh, for me, I think that this part of the book is actually one of the most important parts that often is actually overlooked when people read Fry, right? This trying to find this typology of thinkers as he traces how biblical scholars have looked at the Bible through time. Um, and there, there's, you know, I actually have a little, it gets complex to explain in words. I have a little chart right in the book that is sort of like traces it, but it, Yes, the book has pictures, people. <laughs> uh, that I drew myself, well, anyway, through a computer program. But um, <laughs> and uh, but in general, this is this is I think the contribution of Fry in particular is he starts off by saying, you know, one of the things that you need to think about when you try to read the Bible is, um, you know, to what is it referring, and or what matters the most, right? And there's this initial split, right, where Fry takes one side and everyone else goes on the other side, and for him. What matters most is the actual narrative of Scripture, right? The historical events, the things that we would normally say the Bible refers to, right, in some sort of reference um, way. He's done, he does not, at least in this book, later on, a later Fry nuances things, right? But in this book, um, the Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, he he does not care. This is coming from Ernesti, he traces it to, but he does not really care that much about what um, what actually happened. What he thinks more is that the narrative of Scripture tells us truth in a way that is irreducible to story, right? That story brings something that in no other way is possible to get at that truth. And so the what matters when you read the Bible is not all of the historical reference, right? Because he doesn't really think the Bible refers in that way. But what matters is the story that is being told about Jesus Christ and God. And so that is sort of the first major split, right? Where basically everyone follows the reference track and only Fry and a few others follow this narrative track, right? And I end up I end up saying this is both helpful but problematic because I think in the end Fry gives up too much. Right? I think he gives up sort of any any um yeah any historical reference and and I I think that First Corinthians 15 problematizes that. I think Paul says that's just not gonna work. So while I'm very sympathetic to what Fry is doing, I think that I, I just I think that that ends up having some problems to it. And then the other track is the ostensive track, I call it, or the track that says the Bible is referring to things. And then the question is, how does it refer? And, you know, there's a couple other, you know, subtracks, but in general, the idea is this. Either the, the Bible refers to, like, literal things. Um, so naturalism is one of these branches. The Bible is referring, but it, it's only doing it sort of wrongly. And all this is actually just, you have to just see all this is happening under naturalist principles. And so when the Bible says Jesus walked on water, he really didn't, right? That's him walking on the shoreline. We know these famous, right? He, he's walking on a, on a submerged sub, uh, a submerged sandbar or something, right? And then there's the supernatural side, which is like everything in the Bible is absolutely true. And so they're still referring. So the one, the naturalism, it was referring, but it was wrong. The other one is referring and it was right, the supernatural. And then there's a mythophile branch, which I think has also become sort of important, which I identify with Kaler, which is um, the Bible is referring, but not to like individual events, but sort of more to a, 
a mythos around a time period, right? It, it's sort of like a cultural moment. Um, think of like the kerygma, right? This is this is this is what this is this is what I think Kaler's helpful for. Uh, it's referring not specific to events, but sort of to a general feeling, idea, moment, culture. And these are some of the and these are sort of the main branches that I think is really helpful as we try to think of the relation of history and theology. I think this Fry's typology is, is actually pretty helpful to try to categorize people and make us think what is the relationship to history and theology when you read the Bible? Um, and is it referring or is it not? Is it just narrative? Um, yeah, so that that's how I use the typology. And then I actually I, I place the later people I deal with, Pondenberg, uh, Wright, Kaler, onto that typology as sort of examples. Yeah. Well, let's then turn to those uh, characters. And uh, so as you, you mentioned, you tackle Kaler, Pannenberg, right? Let's talk about saints living. Mm. <laughs> um, and especially because uh, Tom Wright is about to release uh, the Gifford Lectures um, on these matters. What, let's begin. What do you think that Tom Wright got right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say this. Uh, everything I'm about to say is pre-Gifford lectures. <laughs> I have not. I have not interacted with him deeply on that yet. Which I actually will have an opportunity coming up, right? And I'm excited for that. But um, but so everything I'm about to say might be um, you know not terribly relevant. In, in I mean, it's still relevant, but um, you know, it might change when I when I interact with him on those. Um, but so, so here's what I think Tom gets right. Um, Tom gets right, and if you, if you read the chapter, there's a progression, right, where I think Pondenberg um, does not take into account narratives and worldviews very well. And Tom does that, right, at least in the beginning. His method, right, critical realism, takes into account that um, we are all shaped by, you know, society, culture, our minds, and that that affects how we see the world and we have narratives and worldviews. And he sort of, he, he goes down a track that I think is helpful, right? The one that I'm arguing through in the whole book. Um, and so I want to say what he gets right is his initial push towards um, letting worldviews and narratives and all those things affect how we see the world, right? I think he starts out with, with right intentions, um, and a method that is getting close. What? So, yeah, that's where I think it's right. I'll let you ask the next question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, um, well, then, then let's just get cut straight to the chase, as it were. Um, where do you think uh, Wright's project is problematic? Or let's put it another way: explain to let's project an imaginary fan of Tom Wright, a Wrightian. What do you think um, needs to change? What, what are the problems? Yeah, um, I mean, I, 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 I like a lot of Tom's project, and I like a lot of his, his ideas, and I think he's in a great service to the church. Uh, particularly regarding historical method, I think there's some development that needs to happen. Um, and so here's where I think, I think, I think it's where it goes off the rails, right? He starts down a, a helpful track um, in his methodology, and then I think that and this is this is something that I, I show throughout this chapter, and this is what I just think that Christian reflection has been for the last you know 150 years, is that we have these ideas. We we want to be faithful to to the Scripture, but we also want to do public theology, right? We want to do public history, and and these two things, in my opinion, end up clashing in ways that are intractable, that they they do not match, and so what happens, in my opinion, is that Tom starts down this road, 
And then he he starts getting, you know, drawn in by the siren song of public theology, public history. And and he pushes and then what started on the right track starts going off track as he starts saying things like, I'm just a historian. Um, uh, and, and it's hard to say something like that and then think he's seriously taking worldviews into account. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, So what starts off as, you know, worldviews matter, all these things matter, narratives matter critical realism starts then going off the rails when he when he starts you know saying listen everyone else has a story they're all biased and i am not which i point in the book there are multiple times in the book where he says things like that he's like the third quest is the only historically valid quest because we are the only ones that have tried to set aside our you know take serious take seriously the historical moments and things like that um i also think that when he tries to say things, when he tries to adjudicate, when he tries to judge between narratives, right? Um, and take a step back, how, you know, how I define history, right? I think history is events. And then historians and theologians, both sides sort of laid narratives on top of those events, right? That narratives, I don't think that narratives actually exist in history unless you're God. <laughs> I think God has a narrative that he is producing through history, I don't think we have access to it, and I don't think um, I don't think that like the narratives that we lay on history actually exist. So like something like this, I don't think the Renaissance exists in history. I think that's a narrative that we lay on top of history to try to explain the world. I don't think that you can go down and take out your shovel and trowel out the Renaissance. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't dig up the Renaissance. Um, you can't dig up these narratives, and I think Tom thinks you can dig up these narratives. And that there is a true, and I call it a true worldview or a true narrative to history. Um, and so I think Tom gets, gets off track when he starts saying, we can judge narratives, we can judge worldviews based on the prima facie. And he, that's the word he uses exactly, which I sort of hit on. Um, the prima facie historical events. And my argument is, that we actually don't know what the events are, what the data points are, right? The underlying base of history, unless you're coming at it with a worldview. So here's an example I ask in the book. Um, is Jesus walking on water a data point of event or is that a narrative, right? Um, and so for for me as a Christian who's been formed in the Christian story and, and, and identifies as a Christian, Jesus walking on water is an event because I think God could have Jesus walk on water. I think that's a historical data point. But for someone coming out of the naturalist tradition, the Ronkian tradition, right? Jesus walking in water is not a historical data point. That's not an event. So we are now seeing different, different world events, right? The, the, the data by which we are all working is now totally different because um, I see this as a historical event. The, the Ronkian does not. And so my argument to Tom is that there is no prima facie data that we all agree upon, that even the events themselves, and I nuance this a little bit, but the events themselves are, are formed by the worldviews that we bring, right? That, that worldview A sees these sets of events, worldview B sees these sets of events. Narrative A narrates these sets of events, and narrative B narrates these sets of events. And so... There is no, I'm just a historian. There is, I'm a Christian historian who sees the world from a certain point of view with a certain narrative and these events. And so this idea of a public history, I just don't think, I don't think is actually a reality. I think that the Christians see the world from a certain perspective, from a certain narrative and multiple, but you know, I argue for one, like the rule of faith, 
and naturalists, Ronkian historians, see the world from a different one, and so we are actually working with a different set of events. And so for us to say we can judge narratives and histories by just the prima facie data of events, I think is a mistaken understanding of what history is, how it works, and the access we have to it. Yeah, yeah. I th and I think um, one of the strengths of your book is, one of the many, is that you illustrate your arguments very clearly. Um, and I, I enjoyed that particular example in the chapter. Um, that made your, your point uh, crystal clear. Okay, now let's move in to a quick-fire round. I'm hoping to trap you here, um, but we shall see. So this is a round where I'm... Um, I'm just going to ask you some questions and then just give me your immediate response okay. without any justification or, or explanation necessary. That's, um, that's, that's so. really hard for a you know academic to do, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no explanation, yeah, especially no with the nuance. questions I've got coming up. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> so, wine or coffee? Hot chocolate. <laughs> What's your favorite heresy? Hierarchy, uh, hierarchy in the Trinity. If you could delete a book of the Bible, what would it be? Oh, that's a mean one. <laughs> how could you? How could this be a good answer? Leviticus. Leviticus. <laughs> oh, my colleague is writing a commentary on Leviticus Sorry. at the moment. Are you more of a night in with friends or a parachute jump and a leotard type of person? Night with friends. You grew up in North Dakota, I discovered. Um, so let's just test your local knowledge here. The world's largest what was eaten in North Dakota in 1982? <laughs> uh, bowl of Nephila soup. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Hamburger. <laughs> uh, were you really? Did you really grow up there? Okay, now, there are now two Chick-fil-A's in North Dakota. Does this mean that an evangelical revival is imminent? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Famous pastor Mark Driscoll also comes from North Dakota. How did he influence you? I didn't know Mark Driscoll was from North Dakota. What, what city is he from? <laughs> I've no idea, I'm afraid. I, I'm, I'm a disciple. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I know it. Um, okay. Some final questions before um, we um, wrap it up with our, our surprise question. So you have a long and remarkably well-researched chapter exploring contemporary historical theory. You dive into Danto, and that was a real highlight for me. Um, Roland Barthes, um, Hayden White, and Frank Ankerschmidt. I mean, in a nutshell, without necessarily going through them all, um, how do they challenge Rankian history? What do they teach us? Yeah, I think um, they teach us that history is a two-leveled event, two-level thing that has events at the bottom and narratives at the top, and that historians are always writing history as people. We're never writing them as robots. They're not writing them as neutral or unbiased, but that no matter how we approach the project of writing a history, it is always a person with perspectives and ideals and hopes and dreams and ideas that cannot be taken out of it. And actually, and I think this is really important, that we shouldn't want to take it out of it. That part of what makes history beautiful and amazing and rich and, and powerful is that it is written by people who, who have um, emotions and desires and thoughts. And that that actually is what makes history 
worth doing and that to withdraw right those things to take the historian out of it and to make it this sort of robotic neutral uninteresting thing ha- actually makes people uninterested in history and makes history sort of go to a place of death that, that no one cares about and it doesn't make it doesn't have any relevance to our life it doesn't speak to us and that what we need is this rich personal um uh uh, biased, I'm going to say, right, in ways that bias is not a bad term, right? It just means that you have personal stake in it, that you care about it. And all those thinkers are trying to push on us and say, um, don't be afraid to write history that's passionate and beautiful and aesthetic and pleasing. And that to have your only goal in writing history as um, an unbiased account of every event that happened through time is to fail in okay. writing history. And um, so, in a sense, you're saying, I suppose, that. Contemporary biblical studies has bought into a an account of history or a historical theory that isn't up to date actually with a lot of the most recent developments in um, historical theory, as evidenced in Hayden White, Frank Ankerschmidt, and others. Is that fair? Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. In that we are using an outdated, outmoded view of history that is Rockian, whereas opposed to some of the best work being done on historical methodology, is I'm, this is a very broad term, but postmodern, right, is saying, listen, bring your, bring your, bring your passion and your desire and all those things to it. And we recognize that everyone does this and that to actually, and that actually, you know, and white, I think is really insightful here. And that to say that we don't is, is a move of control. And that's why I start the book out with my 1984 introduction, right, is to say that, um, that there actually is, you know, those who control the present control the past, and that to try to control the present in the way that the rocking historiography does is, is, a, is a move of power and control. And I think Christians, right, we need to break out of that. We need to say, like, we need a new method. We need new ways of thinking. We need to quit being timid in our Christianity. Be bold in our Christianity. Be bold in how you write. Write about Jesus and God and God's actions in the world and don't feel beholden to naturalism and don't be ashamed of it because everyone does it, right? Don't say, oh, well, you know, I hear I'm going to talk about Jesus for a little bit. Everyone, every, all you real historians, close your ears and close your eyes. Um, I, I'm sorry I have to do this now because I'm Christian, but I know no one likes this. Instead, just say like, I'm a Christian and this is how I think the world works. And for me to see the world or pretend it works another way is for me to buy into a different narrative and a different worldview than the one that's presented in the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And I think Christian historians and theologians and biblical studies need to quit pretending that we are neutral and public and start buying into the fact that we are Christians and we see the world differently. And we're supposed to see the world differently. And if we pretend we see the world the same as everyone else, we're failing to living into what Christ is calling to and the and the calling to see the world as Christ sees it, not to see the world in some neutral, unbiased way. Yeah. Um, bold and and um, <laughs> exciting. Um, I mean, really invigorating. Um, now, let me press you on a couple of points uh, because I think um, it may be that... Uh, questions have arisen in in our listeners minds because you present a contemporary constructivist or postmodern set of historical theories historical truth is constructed right through biases not given for public scrutiny on neutral grounds does this epistemological approach then also apply to your own arguments can your own arguments be publicly um, assessed based on communally accepted standards of rationality or will they only make sense to people with your own bias 
Well, so that's partly what I'm trying to do in the book, right? Is to say um, the great thing about this moment in history is that the arguments I'm making are actually finding broad appeal, or maybe maybe reverse, actually. I'm finding these arguments in the wider uh, historical world and saying, listen, um, there is commonality between the sorts of moves I want to make as a Christian and that secular historians are making, right? These guys are all Marxists, right? They're all secular Marxists, the people I'm dealing with at the end there, um, that last chapter. And that I'm, um, and when I was, obviously when I was reading this, I was amazed to find out like these guys are talking in ways that I want to talk as a Christian and they're doing it in, um, in ways that are surprising to me and I'm finding weird commonalities. And, and that was, it was a really open eye opening chapter to write to, for me to find all of these things. And I, I do think, um, let me say this as a Christian, I don't think that I, I, all, um, I think that there is a narrative that is known by God. And I think events really did happen. Right. I, I, I worry that we don't have access to those things aside from revelation. And so that is my, I mean, and so, I mean, the way you phrased it, I forget how you phrased it exactly at the beginning, but I was a little bit, I don't think I would have phrased it exactly the way you did. My, my understanding of truth is being totally constructed. Yeah, I think, I think that um, Christians tell a story that we understand of the world and that we think that's truth and that there is a real truth, but that we have no way to prove that truth to others aside from scripture and revelation and saying, this is a beautiful story we have of the world. This is a beautiful way to see the world. And we hope that you will see it also um, in the same way that we do. And you offer yours out there as one of the narratives and you say, here are some criteria that we think are right. And we hope that you will see them also. Um, not here is the principles we all agree upon, scientific methodology, analogy, criticism, correlation, do you know what I mean? Uh, and then now we can all as right reasoning people say, here are the proper ways to think and everyone outside of that is biased, theological, etc. I, I think that yeah, that is a yeah. unhelpful way of thinking. Yeah, you, yeah you're tr really trying to negotiate some very fine balances here, aren't you, <laughs> yes. when it comes to yeah. truth and epistemology and so yeah. on. Um, when, when one of the other questions that occurred to me in discussion with friends is, what would you say to those who might claim your thesis is an elaborate to quoque fallacy you know that you're biased as well we're all biased therefore my biases are okay um what would you how would you respond to that um i would say in one at a base level i i am doing that right in in saying that um that is just the world we live in <clears throat> and to think that um we have some sort of special access to get behind biases is i think is is mistaken right that that uh you know you have two biases sitting on a table uh you are in one of them how do you know which one is the real one well you have to compare it to some third third truthful thing right and i i don't think we have access to that third truthful thing um but i would say this right it's not that it's just me saying oh we all have the similar biases i would say um the bias that i want to bring the bias that i'm choosing is the one that has come down <clears throat> through christian tradition through time is the one that we've been passed down through the rule of faith that has come down to us through scripture. It is a story that has been told over and over again. And that's, I um, particularly talk with Irenaeus, right? And his, his invoking of the rule of faith and his early proto-creed. And I really try to ground my bias, not in just any bias, but say this is the story that has been told by the church, that has been told by scripture, that has been told by the rule of faith. And if you are a Christian, this is the bias that has been given to you. And so it's not just like you have a bias, I have a bias, we all have biases. It's that you have a story to tell, you have a story to tell, you have a story to tell. They are biased. I have a story to tell, and the story that I tell 
is judged by the Christian narrative, the story of scripture, the story of the rule of faith, the story of church tradition, and that that is the story that I want to tell. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, you finish um, your book with five points which um, should be kept in mind when thinking about Christian theology and history. Um, which do you think is the most important of, of those principles that you enumerate? <laughs> it's like picking a favorite child. <laughs> um, uh, I think the boldly Christian one is the most important one, right? The, the, the final one, just because uh, all of them flow to that one, which is um, Christians need to stop pretending that we don't, we are not influenced by our, by how we see the world. And instead of trying to play the games of a public historical method, Instead, just be boldly Christian in how you th- read the Bible and be boldly Christian in how you think of history. Um, I do, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Is my favorite one of the five. What do you think is going to be the most criticized part of your work when the reviews start coming in? <clears throat> um, I think people will misread my book to say that, to think that I am a total deconstructivist who has no foundation for any truth, right? Um, that, you know, I have some phrase in there where I say things are like facts are just, you know, m- facts are things where we say, I think this is true, right? And and I sort of problematize the word fact. And I think people might grab on some of that stuff and say, he's just a deconstructivist. He's just a, you know, relativist and he has no foundations. And I, I think that's just a, mis- a misreading of the text. So that's one thing I think will happen. Now, actual problems with my text, <laughs> I think, I, th- I mean, I think that's a misreading, but I think the actual problems would be things like, what does this look like? Um, show me what this looks like. And so here's here's a problem that I see, right? We tell the story of the Battle of Gettysburg <clears throat> and we say, um, okay, okay, Seth, how would, a, how would a Christian historian tell me a story about the Battle of Gettysburg and how is that any different from a secular historian? And I think that's a real problem, right? Like, okay, what do I do there? Um, do I say something like the reason, and I, I mentioned this a little bit, the reason that Pickett, that Lee sent Pickett up the field, right up the hill, in sort of an uncharacteristic mistake of Lee. Um, the, the reason he do that is because God was sick of the stench of slavery, and God was so tired of of this war and slavery that he was just, you know, he went down and changed Lee's mind so that Lee made an uncharacteristic mistake. Is that what it means to do Christian history? And I want to say I don't know what that means yet. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what it means. I know that that is a possible reading that Christians should be able to say. And that as a Christian historian, I don't want to say, I can't say that because that breaks the principles of naturalism. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to say God can't act in the world. I want to say God is there during that battle. And I mean, this gets into some of your, how you think theology works, right? Well, you know, your idea of, of providence. But I do want to say that God is there and maybe he's making things happen. And the intricacies of that yet, I don't, yet have worked out. And I think that is the met, I think that's the role of more than just one person. I need some historians to come along beside me and say, okay, Seth, that's an interesting sort of five, you know, five ideas you have there, but what does this look like in history? And I would say I need help and I'm working on trying to figure out what that looks like, but that is more than I can do. I've set up some problems and said, we can no longer do this, right? The historical method is inimical to Christian understandings of the world and we need to get rid of it. But now we need to build something new, 
And I think I would, it would be pretty easy to attack my book to say, you haven't done that yet. And I would say, you're right. And it would say, aren't there all these problems? And I would say, yes, there are lots of problems with this. If you try to actually do it, um, what does it look like? No, I didn't do it, right? <laughs> in, the, in the end of the book, I gave some like, here are five things that when we do it, we, these are things that we need to take into account. But I don't actually like, you know, here's a historical, here's a historical moment and let's do it as a Christian because I have not yet worked that out. And I think there's lots of more work that needs to be done. And so someone, I think that's a problem with a book is that it, it pushes and needs more. It needs an example at the end that says, this is what it looks like. And I could not do it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Yet. So maybe there's a volume two coming out. Yeah. I suppose this shows then that your your book is a stepping stone, isn't it? It's uh, it's taking us on a journey, um, although we're not quite sure where the next step is going to land, and that in itself is an exciting um, prospect. But for throughout your research, uh, what was the most surprising or exciting aspect of your work? Uh, so there's two. One is finding those new foundations of German historicism that we talked about, that was really fun for me because I went into that chapter expecting to have to do, um, you know, here's German historicism and here's all the reasons it's wrong. And I ended up being able to go into that chapter and say, here's German historicism and here's how we've misread it. Right. Which is a really, that's a, that's a much more fun project to write than just, just, you know, than just saying, Oh, these guys are all dumb. And you know what I mean? Like it was much more fun to be like, Hey, we didn't, we haven't read these guys. Right. The second one, um, was a, a similar sort of fun discovery. And when I was reading uh, contemporary historical methodology, right, all those guys in that last chapter, or the second last chapter, um, you know, going in, expect not having any idea what I would find, expecting to have to say, these guys are all wrong, and you know, we don't, you know, we need to get rid of this, and we need to get rid of this, and we need to do something totally uniquely Christian. And instead of that, I was able to say, this work that's being done by the contemporary, um, you know, philosophers of history, that they are making moves that are similar to moves that Christians can and should be making. And that was really fun for me to discover that. Uh, so those are the two most surprising things, that I found both commonalities ancient and commonalities modern, and that I could use both of them in ways that were really unexpected for me. Now, we usually ask um, the end of, a, of an on-script episode, the, the on-script postscript, if you, if you like, we, we usually ask, what idea or concept do you think needs to die? And I think it's pretty obvious that you're going to say the historical critical method. Um, so I wanted to come up with another one. And my, my own co-hosts don't want me to ask which people might, you might want to die. Um, <laughs> so... What do you think will be the most crucial development in Christian theology in the next 20 years? Uh, so I'm going to speak to my American context, Is that, if that's okay with you. Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, all right. I, 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 I'm sorry. I think that the most crucial development in American context, and this probably is globally too, right, is um, how is how is the church different than the state? Um uh, you know, we and you guys know what's going on in America, right? We've got the rise of Donald Trump and the buy-in of the evangelicals and the Republican Party, and I think that that and just it, it is becoming a major problem for the church here as we try as the church tries to identify uh, how is 
how are we faithful as a church? How do we speak of God in the world when so much of the church is buying into a, a narrative that I think is counter to the Christian gospel and the Christian story? Um, and I think that's going to I, th- I think that's going to cause division and pain and trouble. And um, but I think at the end, right, it will make Christians in America be clear about their identity and who they are and and their identity as opposed to just a cultural identity, right? So I think that in America, I wish I could speak globally, but I think in America that is going to be a major question for the church for the yeah, next surely, surely years. not only an American uh, question and Kierkegaard yeah. and Bart and many others come yeah. to mind. <laughs> similar yeah. tipping points. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, so this was Chris Tilling with, with Seth, Seth Herringer uh, on OnScript, um, interviewing him about his fantastic book, Uniting History and Theology. I learned so much from this book, and so I, I encourage all interested in these matters to pick up and read. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.